Good morning. It is so good to see you. My name is Abigail Whitehouse. I'm one of the pastors here. And we are nearing the end of our sermon study on the Psalms this summer. We're almost there. We're in Psalm 11 this morning, so I invite you to open up your pew Bible to page 452. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Um, And as you do that, tell you that this week has been really fun for me, studying scripture I love to get to do, especially when commentaries really enliven the word for us. Um, But it's also been a hard week for my family. I made this joke in the early service. I'm going to risk it again. Um, We have two children, and I have a two-year-old toddler named Aurora, and she has been struggling um, with something, and we'll just call it two words, toddler constipation. Has anyone been there? (laughs) Any parents in the room that can remember back to then? So we were up a little bit in the night, so if I'm a little bleary-eyed, that's why. But God is good, and he is here. Um, And yes, I made a poop joke in the pulpit. Please forgive me. Uh, So let's let's bow our heads and pray that God would be with us. Father, thank you so much for the men and women in this room, and thank you for your good, good word. Holy Spirit, would you teach us from your word? Would you speak through me, Lord Jesus? Would you speak a fresh word to all of our hearts? Would you walk through this room and minister to every single person? We just surrender this time to you, Lord Jesus, and we invite you to do what only you can do. We love you, we thank you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So in our psalm for this morning, David faces a very real threat. A friend or a colleague has come to tell him that his enemies have surrounded him, that they are poised to attack. And his friend suggests a solution. He says, flee, run away, protect yourself, escape, wake up, look around, it's not safe here anymore. And in response, David does something very different. He looks at his friend who claims that his enemies are on his doorstep with their weapons poised, and he says, in effect, no, I'm not running. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? In the Lord, I take refuge. And it's a stunning response to refuse to listen to the voice of fear, to resist the temptation towards fight or flight, and to turn instead to the Lord as his refuge. And while we don't know for certain the historical context of this psalm, many scholars suggest that David wrote this while he was being pursued by Saul, who wanted to kill him. So David had every reason to be afraid. And yet, he doesn't listen to the well-intentioned advice of his fear-mongering neighbor. He doesn't flee out of fear or choose the path of self-preservation, nor does he immediately spring into action. Though we know that David was a wise and diligent leader, so I'm sure he used this intelligence to make a battle plan. But his first response was not to do or to hide. It was to turn his face to the Lord and call to mind the character of God. And in doing so, I believe David models for us a faithful response to the voice of fear and also to the pressures that we face in our daily lives. And it's a response that we're going to look at this morning because I think it's instructive for us. Now, thankfully, unlike David, most of us in this room are not afraid for our personal safety, right? But we still have fears and concerns, like how to care for our ailing parents, or how to engage our adult children, or how to handle that persistent problem at work. 
We each experience stresses and pressures that leave us feeling tense and tired and occasionally even insecure. And like David's fearful friend who suggests that he flee to the mountains, our fears can drive us towards alternative sources of refuge and rest. And I want to take a moment to just name a few of these. We all have our sort of ones that we go to. So perhaps for you, you run to the refuge of work, right? Pressure's feeling, mounting, and you think, you know, if I only send that email, if I only complete that project, maybe if I make progress on that goal, then I'll feel better. Then I can rest. Or maybe you like the refuge of improvement or perfection. If I only renovate the kitchen, if I only organize the pantry, if I only went to the gym, if I only learned that language or earned that certificate or got into that school, then I'd feel better. Then I could rest. Or perhaps yours are the refuge of good rhythms and healthy boundaries. These are good things, right? If only I had the right activities for my children this fall. Or if only I had the right boundaries around work or the right rhythms of rest, then I'd be okay. Sometimes we run to the refuge of politics or the news, entertainment or community service or even our spouse. And all of these things are good things, things we need to engage with, things that are important in and of themselves. But when we look to them to satisfy us or to bolster our self-worth or to silence our anxiety, they ultimately prove insufficient and woefully so. There's always another email to send, right? Another problem to solve, another room to improve. And we end up on this hamster wheel of busyness and striving. And what we need is a refuge who can satisfy us completely, truly silence our anxiety, and remind us of our infinite worth. And what the Christian story declares and what David reminds us of this morning in Psalm 11 is that we have our refuge in our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so this morning, we're going to look a little bit about what does this psalm teach us about our true and better refuge, about the character of this God we serve. And then we're going to talk a little bit at the, at the end about how can we experience God as our refuge in the rhythms of our daily life. So that makes sense? You good to go? All right. So first, God is a better refuge because God is sovereign. He is in control. In the face of fear, David declares, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. David is surrounded by his enemies, but he serves a God who is greater than his enemies, and he calls that to mind. He reminds himself of that truth. Though he is in the midst of the battle, there is one who is sovereign over the battlefield, and he can trust him. And in the face of fear and instability, David looks up. He doesn't look at what's around him, but he switches his perspective. He sees the God who is all-powerful in control, and he rests in that reality. And perhaps we need to remind ourselves of the truth, that truth this morning. And that his fearful friend raised that I was struck by um, as I was studying this week. He says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And I felt like that's sometimes the question we're asking, right? As we look around us at our fracturing culture, at our polarized nation, and you get afraid and you think, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Or perhaps you're just looking at your family and the struggles you're facing. And what God is saying is, look up, I'm in control. 
God is sovereign over our presidential candidates and who gets elected next fall. He's sovereign over your child's teacher and whether or not she makes the team. He's sovereign over your next promotion or even if you go on that date with that girl. God's in control of it. The minute, the monumental. And this should be deeply comforting because it means that we don't have to be in control all the time. And it also means that when your candidate doesn't win, or your child doesn't get the teacher you hoped for, or when you get passed over for the promotion, you don't despair. Instead, we can take refuge in the fact that God is ultimately in control and he has plans he is enacting and resources at his disposal that we can't see and that we don't know about. So our present disappointments become invitations to trust, that trust that God is working together all things for our good, even when it doesn't seem like it or we don't see it, right? But not only is God in control, Psalm 11 shows us that God sees and responds to our needs. In verse four, David says that the Lord sees, and there is a lot packed in this short little phrase. If you know your scriptures well, which I know so many of you do, You'll remember that one of the names of God is the God who sees, El Roy, which tells us that the fact that God sees is a key component to his character. It's key to who he is. It's essential to who he is. God knows the intimate details of our lives. Nothing escapes his notice. No pain or disappointment or sorrow or joy. He witnesses it all, which is really beautiful because it means that we are never alone. Nothing is outside the loving gaze of God. But do you remember who gives God this name, Elroy? Where in scripture do we learn about God as Elroy? Well, it actually comes from the story of Abraham and Sarah um, and a particularly painful chapter in their story. So as you might remember, um, God promises Abraham and Sarah that they're gonna have a descendant. Uh, But the time between the promise and its fulfillment grows long. And Sarai is very old at that point and she begins to doubt the goodness and faithfulness of God so she takes things into her own hands and she gives her slave, Hagar, as a mistress to Abram. And Hagar conceives and of course this isn't God's plan. And in the wake of that, when... um, Hagar discovers that she is with child and Sarai sees it, their relationship begins to unravel, as you can imagine. Hagar resents Sarai. Sarai hates Hagar. And the scripture tells us that Sarai actually begins to mistreat Hagar. And we don't know what what form this mistreatment took, but we know it was so bad that Hagar flees. She runs to the wilderness to escape it. And you can only imagine how desperate and alone she must have felt pregnant, unprotected, in the desert. But it's in that place of desperation, isolation, and despair that the angel of the Lord comes to meet with her. And this is the very first appearance in the Old Testament of the angel of the Lord. And so this is very significant. And now scholars debate, like, who is the angel of the Lord? And some scholars believe that the angel of the Lord was a mighty messenger of God, that God sent to give information. But some scholars believe that the angel of the Lord was actually the pre-incarnate Christ. 
And so this moment in Genesis 16 is actually what we would call a Christophany, which is a fancy theological term for the fact that Jesus comes in the Old Testament to meet with someone. And what does the Lord or this angel do when he meets with Hagar? Well, he says, the Lord has listened to your affliction. The God of all creation has listened to the cries of a female slave. There was no one lower in that society than a female slave, but God hears her cries and comes to comfort her. And in the wake of that amazing encounter, Hagar names the Lord. She says, you are the God who sees El Roy. And she says, truly here, I have seen God who looks after me. Do you know that God sees you? Do you know that he's looking after you like a good father who looks after his children from daybreak to sunset and knows exactly what they need and provides for them? God is intimately aware of everything that concerns you right now. And he's not gonna leave you high and dry. He's not gonna leave you alone in the desert. No, he, if he cares for the flowers of the field, right? If he cares for the birds of the air and if he cares for Hagar, how much more will he care for you? God is your refuge. So Psalm 11 teaches us that God is a better refuge because he's in control and because he cares for us. He sees our needs and responds to them. But he's also a better refuge because he's actually using the circumstances and the struggles, the things that you're tempted to hate in life to develop you and to the men and women he intends for us to be. You may have noticed this really strange um, verse, this phrase in verse four, I'll draw your attention to it, where it says his eyelids test the children of man. And I'm like sitting here in my office reading this, thinking like, well, God the Father doesn't have a body, so clearly he doesn't have eyelids. What is going on here, right? And when you're a preacher and you come across something that you don't understand, you go to your commentary. That is the beauty of living in the modern world. We have commentaries, right? And you look up and it's all these scholars who've done such good research and you're like, yes, that's what that means. So I spent some time with the commentaries and I was delighted by what I discovered. Because what David means when he writes that God's eyelids test the children of man, he means that God evaluates us in order to de develop us. And I'm gonna explain this. So David uses this, um, what we'd call anthropomorphic language. He compares God to humanity by saying his eyelids um, to sort of evoke this picture of God like squinting, this idea of squinting. And this word test can be uh, translated as examine or scrutinize. So he's kind of saying God is scrutinizing or examining the children of men. Sort of like if you have a scientist with a microscope and they're looking closely at something small or a jeweler that's kind of scrutinizing something on a ring. And initially, as I thought about this, I did not feel comfortable or encouraged because you're thinking God is scrutinizing you. And you're like, oh no, <laughs> he sees it all. Like, I'm not half holy enough for him to do that. But as I sat with it more, I discovered that, that God doesn't examine us or scrutinize us in order to condemn us. No. If we are in Christ, if we are clothed in Christ's righteousness, we don't have to fear God's scrutiny. 
He's not like one of those Olympic judges on those panels with their exacting rubrics, ready to like dock a score whenever they make a mistake. Like, oh, that was only a double sow cow. It was supposed to be a triple sow cow. I'm taking off points. Like, that's not who God is. That's not the way he looks at us. No, he evaluates us in order to refine us, to develop us. And we see this again in this word test. In verse five, it says, the Lord tests the righteous. And this same Hebrew word that could mean examine or scrutinize can also mean prove or refine. So he's using this metaphor of God refining us like one would refine a precious metal like silver or gold. And I think why he uses, part of the reason he uses this metaphor of refining is that it reminds us that our growth in Christ-likeness is a process that's often uncomfortable. You know, I'm not a precious metal. I'm not silver or gold. But I can imagine, as I've read about the refining process, that it would be quite uncomfortable for extreme heat to be applied to you. But it's that extreme heat that slowly, over time, in this process, rids the metal of its weakness so it can be the strong and beautiful metal it was intended to be. The metal enters this crucible and as I read about refining, I also realized it's a really messy process. Things are leaking off of it. It's dirty. This is not pleasant. This is not clear. This is not clean, shall we say. And as I thought about all these things, it reminded me that growth in grace, our growth in Christian maturity, it isn't this like clean, clear, linear process with like this start and this end. So you can kind of mark on the map, here I am. No. No, just as the process of grieving, or the process of healing isn't neat or clean, our development might look messy, like a bit of a struggle. So if you're asking this morning, why am I still struggling in this certain area? Or why haven't I mastered this yet? The fact that you're struggling doesn't necessarily mean that you've gone off course. What you see as a detour or a distraction or something that, oh, it's just so frustrating might actually be the very thing God is using to make you into the man or woman he intends you to be. And also the fact that God wants to develop you, that he's examining you with this kind of care and attention to detail, means that he deeply values you. Because you only develop what you value. A coach isn't gonna waste his or her time on someone that she doesn't or he doesn't see potential in, right? But when the coach sees potential in someone, whether this is an athletic coach, an artistic coach or director, or a professional coach, they're gonna come up with a strategic plan to develop that person so that they can use their gifts and skills to the fullness of their potential. And in the same way, God values you. He sees the beautiful potential in you. And he's committed to sovereignly and strategically refining you. As Philippians 1.6 tells us, the God who began a good work in you will bring it to completion and he will use everything at his disposal. So if you're struggling this morning, um, be encouraged. You know, it could be that God is exposing a weakness in you that he wants to develop into a strength. Or that God is allowing you to see, perhaps for the very first time in your life, this area that he wants to heal. Or something that's been holding you back from fullness. Um, perhaps he's allowing you to feel some pain in order that you might repent of a pattern that is leading you on a destructive path. 
Or perhaps he just wants you to be honest with yourself and with others about your own God-given limitations. I wish that God would refine me overnight. I wish that I would wake up tomorrow and just be like my future glory self. I'm sure my husband John would love that too. Uh, but that's just not the way God works, right? God created through a process. Children develop through a process. If we look around us, processes are hardwired into the reality of our world, which means that God designed it that way. And he uses process. And if you're in the midst of a process right now, there is purpose in it. God is not a merciless taskmaster looking for us to measure up. He's like the best and kindest coach that you've ever had. Just take a moment to imagine that person in your mind. What did you love about them? They didn't lie to you, right? They didn't put you on the varsity team on day one or make you perform in front of people when you didn't even know how to read the notes, right? No, they used a personalized process to slowly strengthen you and equip you so that you could compete or perform with confidence and joy. And in a similar way, God is using the circumstances and yes, our very struggles to lovingly shepherd us into Christian maturity. And if we say yes to God's process, if we turn to him in the midst of the struggle, I promise you that he will use all of it, the good and the hard, the glorious and the heavy, to make us more and more like his son. And isn't that a beautiful promise? Finally, not only is God sovereign, attentive, and committed to maturing us, he is just. And we can take refuge in that fact because he will ultimately make all things right. Many of you know Tony Zipfel, right? He's that wonderful man with the blue-rimmed glasses that stands outside under the tent and gives donuts to our children after the service, right? You know what I'm talking about? Um, but what you might not know about Tony is that he's actually also a watercolor artist and an amateur historian. And recently, in a conversation, Tony told me some stories about the experience of enslaved women in America. And one of those stories was so painful, so disturbing, that it actually made me feel a little physically sick. Like the horror of it was hard for me to comprehend. And I think you probably know that feeling. You've probably felt it if you've ever watched a movie about the Holocaust, or maybe even if you've read a recent news story. You might have felt it last week as you watched Flames Engulf Maui. There's an overwhelming amount of evil and injustice on this earth. And we're increasingly aware of the scope of it due to the interconnected nature of our world. And what David assures us in these few verses left the end of the psalm is that God will do something about this. Evil will not win in the end. Though God restrains himself now, in the end, God's wrath will be poured out on all injustice. And that's what David vividly describes in verses five and six. He writes, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. There's no question whose side God is on. And then David goes on to describe the just punishment that the wicked will receive. And I mean, it's, it's hellish imagery that we see in the scripture. A fire and sulfur and a scorching wind and I imagine for those of you, maybe even in this room, who have experienced grave injustice and deep harm to you or your family, I imagine that this would actually be deeply comforting 
to know that God is not blind to the wrong you have suffered and that there are consequences for the perpetrators of evil. And David's prayer that God would rain down, right? Judgment on the wicked. It, it's an imprecatory prayer and it teaches us that we can pray for judgment, for righteous judgment. And it also reminds us that we're not the ones in charge of revenge or vengeance. So when we are offended, when we are hurt, when horrible things are done to us, it's not ours to avenge. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And I think this is a good reminder to us, even there's language in Proverbs about heaping coals on their head, but the way that we heap coals on our enemy's head is not by raining down on them like we're seeing in scripture, it's actually by caring for them. It's this interesting proverb in Proverbs 22. We can trust that God will execute justice. And it doesn't mean that we don't advocate or work for justice today, we do. But it frees us from responding to offenses with rage or revenge, which is very much a culture that we live in. When we are wronged or our justice system fails us, we can know that the God who sees will ultimately put it right. But the troubling and beautiful truth, beautiful because of Christ, is that the wicked ones he talks about aren't just on the news. As Alexander Solzhenitsyn so wisely said, the line between good and evil runs right through every human heart, right? Apart from God, we are all the wicked. We're all this category. We daily do violence with our words and our thoughts, perhaps even our actions, and even on our best days, we fall infinitely short of righteousness. We know this. The truth is that we all deserve this portrait of judgment that David paints here. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Fire and sulfur in a scorching wind, which is his hellish imagery, should be the portion of our cup. That's the language that he uses. It shall be the portion of their cup. And this reference is significant because it refers to the cup of wrath, which is a biblical image for the judgment, the righteous judgment of God. And he's saying that the wicked, which includes all of us outside of Christ, deserve this cup. But there's another reference to this cup of wrath in scripture. There's another time that it's mentioned, and it's in Jesus's prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he says, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus held the cup of wrath in his hands, and because of his great love for us, he drank it in his body on the cross. He consumed the just punishment for our sin in his body on the cross so that we who were once far off, we who were once the wicked, might be reconciled to God and drawn into intimate relationship with him. And because Christ suffered in our place, we who are sinners shall one day behold the face of God. This is the wonderful promise in the final line of this song. The upright shall behold his face. We are gonna get to see God face to face and hear well done because of Christ. If you know Christ, if you have found your life in him and received his free gift of salvation, you will one day behold the very face of God. So how do we respond to this beautiful truth of the God we serve, the God we see in scripture. And how do we practically apply what we know here 
to the difficulties and beauties of our life, right? How do we actually experience God as a refuge on a daily basis? Um, so I wanna suggest three things. There are lots of ways to answer this, three simple things. First, I'd encourage you to take time this week to prayerfully reflect on your life. Ask yourself the question, what do I do when I feel anxious, tense, insecure, or ashamed? Where do I go? What do I run to? What is my number one alternate refuge, right? Ask the Lord to show it to you. And then ask, is God inviting me to repent of some pattern that I'm engaging in that is not leading me to life? Or perhaps adopt a new habit that's gonna help me turn to him instead? They're just good questions to consider, especially as we enter into a new season this fall. Second, one of the ways we learn to experience God as our better refuge is in the context of Christian community. This is partly why I'm so passionate about community groups. They become safe places to process the struggle and to be reminded that God is at work. In just a few weeks, you'll have an opportunity to sign up to be a part of one of these communities, and I encourage you to just think about it, pray about it. Maybe it's exactly what you need this fall to flourish. And finally, the beauty of having God as our refuge is that he is relational. We can have a conversational relationship with the Lord, which is mind-blowing, right? And one of the ways I've learned to hear the voice of God and discern his movement in my life is through the ministry of spiritual direction. Um, it's a ministry we offer here at the church. Um, many of our members are spiritual directors, and if you want to learn more about it, I would be happy to tell you. Basically, you meet with a director, um, and they help you discern the voice of God and discern how to wisely respond to the pressures you face. And also, if you're interested in learning about hearing God, we actually have a community group that's starting this fall, led by the Jensens, and they're gonna be reading the book Hearing God by Dallas Willard. And I know a few better books to learn how to hear and discern God's voice than that one. So there's two opportunities if you're interested in engaging more deeply with God who is our refuge. God is the refuge. Will you, like David, run to him? Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, thank you for this good word. Holy Spirit, would you apply it to our lives? Would you teach us what it means to seek you as our refuge? We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.